Hey there, and welcome to Speak Easy with Kendra Fisher. Join me each week as my guests and I take a deep dive into all of the conversations we've been taught are better left unsaid. No more silence, no more hiding. This is a safe space where anything goes. This week on Speakeasy, I'm so excited to be joined by New Jersey-based counselor, John Ramsbatcher. It feels like such a heavy time for so many coming into the holidays. And John has such a unique perspective on using humor through darkness. It's a tool that so many of us could benefit from learning. And one of those things that maybe we don't recognize that we all have access to. I am so excited for you to hear this conversation. John, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining me. Don't thank don't thank me for having you yet. You got to put up with me for a while still. <laughs> Touche and right back at you because I'm going to wear you, you out. Right? We're going to test. That's okay. We're going to test your metal today. Oh, I like this. I like this. Mm-hmm. So first off, everyone, thanks for joining us. Um, John, I'm not going to attempt to get into credentials because I never do. So I'm just going to ask you to share what you do for a living and kind of. We'll, we'll take it from there. We'll find out if you're going to become my, my new shrink support unit or how that works. Sure, no problem. So I'm a licensed professional counselor here in New Jersey, USA. It's an equivalent of a social worker degree. It's a master's in counseling. And uh, I've been doing that. I've had that degree and been practicing for about close to 30 years, to be honest. Um, And I spent the first 10 years of my career working in a rehab outpatient drug and alcohol recovery uh, treatment. And my particular program was dual diagnosis, which means those who had also a co-occurring mental health diagnosis, anxiety, depression, um, up and down the spectrum of psychiatric diagnosis along with the substance abuse or addiction. So we had a separate track for that. And that was in the um, mid nineties when uh, specializing care uh, was starting to become prominent and important because back before that, you just lumped every person who used substances together and they started to see the wisdom through research of separating out. So early, early in my career was this dual diagnosis um, job and it really lit a fire for me about a lot of different psychiatric recoveries and how to be assistive as a talk therapist. Mm-hmm. So I jumped from that into private practice after about 10 years. And I've been doing that ever since here in New Jersey. And so what are your focuses on in private practice? Because that's a pretty, I mean, obviously being within an addiction system is is fairly niche and absolutely heavy. Um, is that still part of your, your private practice or what are your focuses on your private practice? So in the beginning, I used to joke, people would ask me, who do you specialize? Who do you see? And I'd say anybody who, have, who has a checkbook. Yeah. Because back in, back in the analog days, people had checkbooks. And yeah, but uh, uh, it, I also really, though, enjoyed seeing folks from lots of different backgrounds, ages, um, issues, presentations. So very quickly, my private practice became much more diverse in pre- yeah. presenting issues. And most of my referrals came from existing clients. So they they had friends and family who had all kinds of different things that they wanted to see a therapist for. And they would ask yeah. me because then someone would show up with something in their life and they'd call me and say, do you see people with this? And I'd say, I, I sure, like, let, they, I'll try out for them. <laughs> yeah, if I they do. like me, then they will keep going. Yeah. 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 And I was always upfront with folks about like, 
but I'm not like specialized trained in, in these different, you know, niche things. But if you like my style, my style yeah. of therapy is actually fairly applicable across the board to lots of different things that a human can suffer with because it's sort of psycho-spiritual in nature and and cognitive behavioral mixed right into that and identity. So for me, um, it wasn't an issue, but I totally understood if a client wanted to see somebody who had like a PhD in a very specific yeah. training. Yeah. So yeah. no one ever said you don't have enough training for me to continue to see me. So it just kind of became this very eclectic uh, practice. Eventually addictions kind of kind of sort of slowly dropped away and was replaced by a lot yeah. of couples, a lot of couples okay. and a lot of intimacy issues and, and a lot of identity issues that have now become, um, and, and with sort of millennials and Gen Z, uh, yeah. quarter life crisis kind of stuff that, yeah. um, which is has huge. replaced. Yeah. Yeah. So Gen Xers so, and baby boomers have a lot of shame spirals and yeah. younger, um, clients uh, have a different set of uh, issues that are not as are not as quietly tightly bound in shame. Yeah. So yeah, I still love adolescence and working with teenagers. Um, so that keeps me young and, and allows me to understand what sliding into someone's DMS mean. And uh, yeah, on. yeah. Yeah, I know. I, 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 I hear that. I, I always have to, it makes me laugh because there's times where I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, like wearing a, a Drew House hoodie, Justin Bieber's label. And I'm just like, I'm 40 years old walking around in a Drew House hoodie. But I mean, I'm so used to being around it and I see it. And I love it. It looks comfortable. I'm like, screw that. You're not, don't be ageist. I can wear a, I can wear a deconstructed Drew House hoodie just, just as well as you can. Right? Exactly. And I, I love, see, and I love the, uh, I love the notion of the PhD because what I have found in my, many years in this space now is generally the PhD, um, you know, doesn't necessarily make anybody more capable of dealing within those issues. It just means that you've like narrowed down their diagnosis because it's usually people who are like, well, this is what I went through. So I'm going to go become a doctor now. And then I'm going to, I'm going to focus on this one. Mm -hmm. But uh, something you just said there that I love that I want everybody to kind of ponder on for a moment is the fact that you just said, let me try out for you. And I think that that's something that is so important for people to know, and especially people who have never ventured into talk therapy before, because you often hear people saying they didn't help me at all, or it was bullshit, or it was, you know, I didn't, I'm not going to pay somebody to care about me or, it, you know, and they don't necessarily understand the the complexity of that relationship. And I love the way you just put that because I think that it's so important to find somebody to talk to who understands that they have to be the right fit for you as much as you being the right fit for them. Yeah, a thousand percent. That's my pitch when I bring someone new in, I give them a little elevator speech about who I am, how I do the practice, that they get to hire and fire me as they see fit and yeah. there's no contract and this tryout thing is like two to three sessions you know with getting to know yeah. one another and like within one yeah. session they usually have a sense of how i'm going to do counseling and like be a therapist yeah but my style of being a therapist is not how it's taught in school in the sense of um 
uh, well, I, I shouldn't say it's not how it's taught. It's just, it took me a while to figure out that I was going to be the talk therapist that I am as a person. And yeah. Um, so that's not for everybody, but I, I often, and my other part of my speech is if you're new to therapy and you come in and you're nervous and you're anxious and you don't know what to talk about and you think you need to divulge a whole bunch of things that you're nervous to even discuss with anybody, uh, yeah. that makes you normal. So yeah. I basically reassure every person coming in, if you feel weird and anxious, and this is like, odd, oh, you're talking to a stranger about yourself, that makes you normal. And if somebody's yeah. like super at ease with talking to me about their stuff, I'm usually like, that's kind of like, what's going on? Like, are you high? Yeah. What's happening? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, people can be really at ease with it, especially if they've done it before. But if, they're, if they've never done it before, it should feel kind of awkward and strange. So I, I want folks to know that right out the out of the gate. And then they can also never make another appointment. If the way I come across or the way they feel in therapy is just too much. And when there's trauma, there's so many different layers to helping someone feel safe with um, peeling the onion of pain. Yeah. And as you point out, and you shared openly, um, you know, it's, it is something that can pull you down and weigh you down. So the last thing you need is somebody who's pulling you in a different direction in my my school of thought and my training to help as a therapist is to be is very client centered and body it's kind of body psychotherapy which is like helping folks to be in their physical body and talk about feelings in their body right from the beginning so that when they're shaking or crying or trembling and they're apologizing you know we actually talk about that as a reasonable thing to have happened and to help release the shame of the healing process so <clears throat> so there's a lot going on there, but that's me riffing off of you, riffing off of me talking about, yeah, yeah. It's like a dog chasing. We're going to, we're going to, we've got like a whole hour of that. So get ready. I, we're just going to see how many of this you can go back after that. The, one of the points you just brought up that I think is huge right now, um, that I'd love for you to expand on a bit is, is this entire generation of people dealing with quarter life crisis, which is very real, um, you know, and, and new because it's, you know, it's, I always find there's this complexity that comes with uh, generations understanding one another. And there's the older generations looking down on the younger generations, seeing entitlement and seeing a lack of resiliency. And there's this, you know, other generation beneath that, that, as you said, is just completely evolving from a place of shame. And, uh, you know, where's, what do you think is causing some of this? Like, what is, because it does seem to be a common theme right now. Yeah. Um, so my normal response is the cause is the overwhelming burden of uh, modern life on younger people, starting with what they grow up in, uh, with digital life reflecting themselves back to themselves and the dread and the fear and the, excuse me, and the constant um, comparison that tends to happen. Right? Their life is very much in a, a sort of spotlight, even if they run from the spotlight, it's it not it's not easy to get away. It's like around all the time. Yeah. So yeah. just knowing too many things at too young an age, not that I, I don't think that they shouldn't know things. It's just that they're a very little brain, a little yeah. collection of neurons has a hard time understanding it. And so even when we use age appropriate language to explain everything, it still overwhelms them. And that's one piece of the puzzle just uh, when i see clients coming and in their teens and a little bit older 
we we have very adult conversations about things and i'm really really glad that we can and that they want mentors that they trust mm -hmm. um whether it's me or you know a teacher or their own parents which you know would be great if everybody's on the same page um yeah. so but that being said those conversations and that mentorship doesn't do all that much while this crisis continues for them it you know teen years is always forming one's identity through our adolescence is always difficult so yeah it's sort of like um it's the spin of it is more intense than ever before in the analog days there could be a separation from it in in the simplicity of life in the sense even though there was more despair in different other ways. Um, so younger people can be more connected globally than ever before. So it can take away some of the, the despair and the loneliness from not having any option to reach out. At least there's options there and that's great. Yeah. But it, it doesn't, it actually spins things a little faster when it creates a need to know what am I gonna do with all of this? And that's where therapy and counseling just most of the time with a teenager is just helping them to hold on until they're more yeah. thinking kicks in and they can do, um, they can turn the corner. So um, we could get into a lot of different angles on this about what young people know at what ages and then how it overwhelms them, whether it's family yeah. dynamics, intimacy, love, sex, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Um, they know yeah. it all, and they are yeah. wanting to figure it out. When they're part of their adolescent consciousness, can't figure it out all the way. It's just necessarily impossible neurologically. Yeah. Yeah. So teaching them that without talking down to them, and yeah. doing strengths kind of counseling, like here's what you do have going for you, or what what. Yeah. And the relationship you know, between them and the counselor is super important to just to provide some hope. Yeah. And I think one of the things, too, that so many people don't account for and probably, you know, adults are the worst for it because we we expect that level of common sense to be present and we expect them to be able to process and understand things with a lack or with a with a rational thought that isn't present at that point in their life. and and um for me it's always kind of been the the whole notion of you know we haven't changed we haven't evolved as humans to actually take in more information but more information keeps coming in like our our prime primate ability to take that and deal with that hasn't changed yet now we've got kids who are being hit from every angle by information that they don't understand and then so much comes from them trying to disseminate that and apply it to their worlds with no understanding and i often find in a conversation i have found myself having a lot lately is adults unwillingness to have conversations that need to be had with their kids suicide being a, a prime example of this because we don't like having hard discussions and we don't like the discomfort of it and it's never gonna happen to us and it's not a problem our kids are ever gonna deal with. And yet they're in a world where this information is flooding them every day. And if you don't educate about what that means, then they're going to create this warped perspective of what that actually is, you know, as an act, as a, as a finality. And, uh, you know, I, 
I think a lot of that starts with the parents really understanding the need to have those conversations because it's, it's true. I mean, I always, I always wonder, you know, we're so paranoid now as parents, is it really that prime example are more kids being abducted these days? Do we really need to fear our kid running down the street? Or is it just that now, because there's 50,000 different news channels reporting it on 50,000 different medians, we're more likely to hear about it. You know, where, right. where's the statistics on what that has done to us and our ability to process any of that? Right. I mean, I think this, the research tends to indicate that things are getting safer uh, mm -hmm. as we go along because we're able to uh, communicate more rapidly across domains, school, home, police, law yeah. enforcement, et cetera. But the um, perception that is getting worse because of all that communication and the billboarding of it and yeah. the salacious kind of billboarding too, like that, yeah. you know, where we're, we're by nature, a part of our consciousness is devoted to, wait, what happened to him? Is that, yeah. did that really happen? Yeah. So, um, so that's a really great point about parents and, and I see this in schools a lot. Um, I have school counselors as clients and um, it's not great here. I've been saying for about a year, maybe longer that the, the future here, let's mark this on the internet for future possibility. Yeah. yeah. That, yes. That my prediction is that schools, high schools, element, maybe middle schools will need to have an entire separate kind of um, curriculum for mental health that Oh, and that parents will sign up for it and it won't be like you don't talk to my kid about how they feel or their identity or all that um yeah we'll have we have graduated from the crazy stuff like that and we will have come to the point of we don't want any more um we we can do this in schools like in new jersey for example yeah. school counselors are not allowed to do talk therapy type stuff with the students they have yeah. to stick to a particular realm they have to refer out for that yeah. And that's where, you know, the ball gets dropped a lot of the time. So my prediction is that there'll be a vice principal who is in charge of, who's clinically trained like me, who's then in charge of the clinical staff, who then oversees the mental health part of the curriculum and how they'll budget it or how they'll find time for it. I don't know in the school day, Yeah. but that's because of the tension of growing up and the struggle that the, our young people have. We need to meet yeah. this challenge in the community. It can't just be farmed out to individual providers like on the fly it has to happen yeah between a like a conversation between the home and the school where everybody's signing up for that so that back to school night involves the kids mental health too and that yeah. that's not a that's not something that should be so we should be afraid of we need to be less and less afraid of it because of the way the kids are hurting and yeah. and i should say this about teens teens actually are very like incredibly smart, like they know what's going on in the world. And most of the time they're pretty enlightened and want to see positive change for each other. And, you know, like Greta Thorn Thornburg, Berg, whatever her last name is, the environmentalist. Yes. yes. And, you know, she just, Thornburg. and there's just so many, the Parkland uh, school shooting uh, survivors and, yeah. I mean, and on and on, like they are quite capable of, of spearheading change. But like you've said in a previous one of your talks, we shouldn't look to the younger people to do it. And yeah. that's absolutely right. Like we need to yeah. join them in that. But there's resistance. We're in a weird time of social change, as you know. And yeah, yeah, it's like 
but it's not yeah. going to end there. It's going to progress past that. In my opinion, I'm not a social scientist purely, and I'm not a historian purely, but I do think I know enough about history to say we've been at these dark times before as, yeah. uh, you know, in, in the Western world. And I think we can push through and, and obviously get to this place where this might happen, where schools themselves become empowered to take care of the whole student. I have lots of teacher clients too. I have law enforcement clients, I have teachers, I have school counselors. I have people who work in these sectors, partly because they have really good insurance here in New Jersey. So it pays for their <laughs> therapy. Yeah, yeah. And that's why you get to see them. And that's why I get to see them, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think it's, uh, you know, going back to that, I think it's so important too, in terms of allowing them to lead. And it, it's this precarious balance because they seem to be so much more enlightened and able to kind of identify the issues and, and want that change. And the disappointment that comes with seeing lawmakers and seeing adults failing to show up time and time again, that's heavy. Like that's that yeah, in yeah. and itself is heavy. How 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 you could be a student in a school and see the repercussions for a mass shooting be see through backpacks and that mm -hmm. being the definition of change has got to be heartbreaking and it's got to be discouraging. I mean, you, you, how how do you carry that? Sure, they want mm -hmm. change, but where's the hope you're providing? Because the hope you're providing is our adult sense of security, which is, well, that's never going to happen again. And that's not, mm. it, it can't happen there twice. And it wouldn't be where my kid is. So how much change do we really need? You know, let's just, let's yeah. give, you know, in that instance, people, the wrong people, more guns and see if that makes a, a positive change, um, which is asinine. And, and that's a whole other that's a whole other talk because now we're going to jump onto a political discussion that I shouldn't have right now. Uh, <laughs> I feel safe because you're in New Jersey and I know the, I, I know at least one person, you know, so I feel confident that we could have a political discussion, but I'm not going to take the chance. Um, laughter, laughter. I, I alluded right. to this in my, in my, statement about the conversation we were going to have today and and this is one that fascinates me and intrigues me i think simply because it is something i use a lot um appropriately inappropriately take your pick i don't know um but the whole notion of staving off darkness in different ways and finding different practices to manage good mental health and adversity and challenges and one of the things that, you know, we, I had been brought to my attention prior to this is your kind of notion of using humor. And I just, I want to learn more about that and, and pull that mm. one apart. Okay. Using humor, you mean as a coping mechanism? Absolutely. Yeah. In the or just to make time. fun of me if you want. I mean, we can, we could go there too, if you're, I'm, 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 yeah. Is this yeah, maybe one of your kinks. I don't know. Is this? <laughs> I don't know. It could be. I, I'll never admit it. <laughs> oh, that could be a second part of it. Mm -hmm. Well, so yeah, you know, it it. What I hear a lot from people when I talk about humor is people saying, "Well, you're so funny. I could never be funny like you," and that's 
that's part of the mystique of humor that I, I like to try to break down. It's similar to folks saying they can't write. Well, I can't write. You're such a good writer. I can't write. Um, and on and on. And what I find humor is, is a different kind of yoga. These are different postures that our consciousness can assume. And if we assume them without getting in the way and sort of just ease into them, we can get better at them. Humor, what's cool about humor is it provides distance. It, it allows someone to step yeah. away from pain. And that's why people tend to crack jokes, in my opinion, at odd times, at dark times, because they're in so much pain that they don't know what else to do. And to be honest, it's one of the most pro-social pro productive things to do. I mean, I could, I could cut myself, I could burn myself, I could, I could fall on the ground wailing. There, none of those things are bad behaviors. They're just not moving in the, in the other direction. And cracking a joke or finding humor in the darkest times is sometimes a way to at least initially detach from the pain. And when we watch a comic or we watch something together, humor is a, a shared experience. So it's hard to really be entertained with humor alone. So it also brings us together. When we watch a movie in a theater together, that's funny. And you hear other people laughing, the, their laughter ripples through and it makes it that much funnier versus sitting yeah. in your living room with maybe your partner or like a friend and one of you giggles a little. It's, you know, that's fine. My wife and I will watch something and she'll start howling in laughter. And then I just can't help myself. I'm laughing now. Yeah. And if I don't think that's entertaining, that that joke wasn't my joke or there'll be some other joke. Yeah. And, I'm, and she'll like, I, and she'll say, I love hearing you laugh. So th these things about like, it allows for space and it's a shared experience that I remind people of when they go like, yeah, but what about being funny? It's like the least important thing is the being funny. The most important thing yeah. is again, the sort of spiritual part of, of the yoga of laughing. So oftentimes when I'm out, so I play music as well. So when I'll play gigs and I'll meet people and, and we'll be chatting and they'll be like, oh, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a psychotherapist. And they're like, what? And their jaw drops. Cause we just were like yeah. making all kinds of weird jokes and like cracking up. And then they're like, I have to see you for therapy. This is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> like, cause this is the perfect, like you're gonna shrink my head with all these jokes. like." Yeah. And I go, well, it's not quite as uproarious when we're in the room, but it's fairly close. Like the, the yeah. ease with which clients will work in and out of pain. And then we'll be back to laughing about stuff because yeah. partly because that's who I am as a person, but also they usually get with the benefit of finding the joy and the uh, kind of comedy in the pain, you know, tragedy plus time equals comedy is a, yeah. a saying in the, in the business of show. And it was something that for back in the day when I was in college, I was actually deciding between going into comedy or going into something like this. Oh, so, so like you're actually funny. So like I should have just like given you a stand-up hour here. I like, this is good to know. This is good to so know. So you're actually funny. I don't, like I, you're I actually just insulting. Maybe. I, it was it was borderline <laughs> insulting not if you're funny it wasn't insulting if you're funny because you would understand <laughs> my yeah, intentions yeah yeah good good it's uh it so much of what you just said like i just i want to pull this apart so i i mean and it has in two lives you know in my in my one in my one world there's been lots of personal trauma lots of stuff to unpack and deal with and sort through. And then in my other world as a firefighter, 
um, dark humor is a thing. And something you just said is exactly how I've tried to explain it to people. And that is humor is distance. It is very much an opportunity to detach myself from a moment so that it is not emotional and it gets me to the next moment. And if that's the tool that I need to use with the guys I'm working with for the next 24 hours to make sure when the tones go off again and we're responding to somebody else's crisis and somebody else's tragedy, I'm not still connected to something that is too heavy and too hard to be effective through. And so instead we choose those those tools, I think, to detach and distance ourselves from that last situation. Um, But a couple of things. So do you find that society today, it makes this a difficult tool to utilize? Because we're in a time right now where everybody feels the need to be so careful and so guarded with how they deal with things, with how they process things, with what they say and i mean certainly there are conversations that i have had with people in my life that if somebody heard me say it they would maybe try to have me formed like it's it's quite conceivable you know do you find that that society is really kind of taking that tool away from us a bit uh good question i I, there's two layers to that. One is what we pers- what what we do out in public, and and in some ways, the the societal changes that we want. Those of us who are progressive, yeah. that we want yeah. to have lots of mutual respect and remove the capacity to make fun of others and shame things for comic purposes. I Absolutely. I above all like when I was a comedian, when I actually did comedy in college, I. I, my partners and I, because we did uh, uh, improv thing, n- we never, we when we did shows, I marvel at this that no one ever said anything or did anything on stage that would have made. If, if you watch the shows back now, I, and I don't, we didn't say that we just wouldn't do this. It's just we yeah. didn't work blue where somebody somebody's um, identity or persona would be the butt of the joke. Probably some of it if we watched it back now, there would be things we would be making fun of at times, um, things that now would probably be shaming uh, someone with a disability or something like that, that would have been totally fine back then for comic purposes that, so this first layer that we're talking about, like is is society sort of changing in some way? Yes, so the short answer is yes, but it's a good change in my opinion as a comedic person. But figuring out how to then be able to be private and and uh yeah. be, be yourself know who you are as a person and yeah if you need to crack jokes that are even inappropriate if it's private and you need to do it because you need to get some of your tension and stress out it's a piece of venting people yeah. vent people have psychotic thoughts they have weird sexual thoughts it's part of yeah. the human consciousness so if, if we have trusted people that we can just vent stuff out to and see that as a as a lever that gets or like a spigot gets turned on and then gets turned off but it's not who the person is. It's not their character. Yeah. And we, we yeah. do need to, I think, we would benefit if we could all acknowledge that that's not crazy or bad about society. It's just taking that and monetizing it as a performer is probably going to be something that 
may be a thing of the past or maybe as a niche thing that people all agree like yeah that's that guy he does those jokes or that's what she talks about and yeah. if you want that ticket you can go to that show and and then we don't it doesn't have to be the hammer doesn't have to keep coming down on it part of like yeah. we were talking about before like things will settle out somewhere but we can't yeah. censor people that much but there needs to be a reckoning as we sort of slice up the patriarchy and you know, and look at the leftover parts uh, as well as other aspects of oppression and say, listen, yeah. we should all acknowledge that this is how people kept power oppressively. Yeah. And I went to an all boys Catholic high school. So the jokes were often very <laughs> like much. There's no jokes there. <laughs> there's no, there's so no jokes to be funny. told there. Yeah, it was so, uh, but the jokes were so, I mean, some of the guys, it was just, you know, I just couldn't. I'm I'm not a fan of uh, that kind of humor, and for me, yeah. being truly humorous is about being childlike. Children don't make jokes; uh, they just are joyful and gleeful, and like laugh at the yeah. silliest stuff. Your children yeah. just go, "Mommy, look!" and then they are like ridiculous yeah. and absurd, yeah. and it's wildly entertaining until it's annoying as as f, and then you're like, "All right, stop now. You gotta stop." Yeah, yeah. But, well, I think that I. I think that problem too is it's like a child can get away with saying things in honesty and in truthfulness with no maliciousness and no intention of it being something else. And as we age, I feel like we lose that ability to just be pure. Like I feel like because we're so tainted and jaded by real life and our our experiences and the fears we're taught and the controls that we learn that sometimes we we start to suck at that right so we we if we can retain our the younger the inner child who is kind of a wild having fun child yeah uh, but be our adult selves and be be humorous with that part of ourselves and that alone so that the darkness doesn't come out or um it's one thing to be joking in private because you're venting and getting it out yeah but then if we're if we're in mixed company how, how, you know, trust, how much do you, those, these people trust you, know you, um, yeah. to, to allow you to work blue. If you're going to work blue, that's a comedic comedy term for, you know, off color humor. Okay. So if you're going to work blue, you need to know your room and they need to know you. And yeah. the, the, and there's lots of different, um, sort of tricks of the trade, but it's much simpler to be funny if people keep it simple and get out of their own way and say whatever's in their head, especially if it's absurd or weird. So yeah. when I was growing up being weird, I liked being weird for comedy purposes because I had no other moves. I was, I'm very short and I was skinny. So I had no, <laughs> no actual moves. For That's, what That's what you That's had. That's what you had. That was your playbook. That so was my playbook. I learned how to do pratfalls so I could throw myself on the ground or like I would trip on curbs on purpose. I'd throw myself down you know, flights of stairs and it was kind of Buster Keaton. Yeah. And like Dick Van Dyke, yeah. like old school, like Pratt I Falls. like it. And I like it. Yeah. I don't know why I was, I was an athlete so I could do it without getting hurt. And, uh, people always found it to be wildly entertaining. And so I was yeah. just like, well, this makes me feel good. They get, they feel good. Now we're bonded together. Of course I was just like, now we're bonded together for life. They think I'm cool. And they'd be like, dude, you're weird. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah that's no, good, you're right? my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm coming over. Like, We're gonna watch movies. <laughs> pretty much. 
I like it. Yeah. I like it. I'm so socially awkward. It wouldn't matter. I'm like that person that it, it's, uh, it's a challenge, right? Especially when you live with anxiety and, and panic to figure out how to navigate those social settings. And especially since I quit drinking, like, I mean, it's one thing when you can just go drink, it is so easy to be social in this world. It, it's like a, it's a pass, right? Okay. Like I have nothing right. to say. If I drink a lot, that still makes me fit in. Um, mm. And then you stop drinking and it's like, you have to make that okay for everybody else. Cause everybody else is so uncomfortable with you not having a drink in your hand that yeah. you're in the room and it's, they don't recognize you're crawling out of your skin and, and you're mm. just, you know, sitting there watching. Yeah. So it's, uh, I think it's, you know, this precarious balance of what we think we can use and what we can't. Something that I've been talking a lot about lately is dancing. I don't dance. There's no part of me that can dance. There's no part of me that has rhythm. There's no part of me that's going to walk into a room and start dancing and feel anything other than every single person in this room is watching me and judging me because apparently I think I'm that great. I think I'm so good that everybody in the room is interested in me, um, which is another blessing of anxiety. But mm it's also one of those things that kind of similar to humor. If you just get out of your way, there's so much benefit to just letting go. And mm -hmm. how, so how do you guide somebody into that? How do you guide somebody past that internal kind of conflict of I'm going to make a fool of myself and help them to a place where it's, why don't you just try to experience this instead? Um, that's i'm not paying you enough eh? that's well it. i was just going to say we can make a lot of money off that one you know if we right sure uh, well i, I mean, was if we... counting on you having the answer but i mean so if you're guiding if you're if you have a client sitting there and you're encouraging this this practice of humor or this practice of kind of reconnecting so, with the simplicity how do you get yeah. somebody to get out of their way so I don't, I don't encourage them. What ha what I do is we do it together, the client and I, Okay. and it happens just like everything with comedy, it's timing. So yeah, it can't, it evolves on so its like own. So like make me and laugh right now. Just make me laugh. No. <laughs> See, so yes, I got great. one. Fantastic. I'm retiring right now. That's it. That's it. That was my comedic timing. That's it. it That's all I got. It was perfect. <laughs> perfect. We can we can list out a couple of things. You didn't have you didn't have a drink. You just you had that perfect tea. moment. Tea. Yeah. Non-alcoholic drink. You know. Yeah. Just talking about getting out of one's way. It, eventually, it becomes the intention, and then and then the person does it if it's if it's meant to be. So, like in therapy, there's so many things to kind of wonder about with someone's consciousness, like what they're bringing into the room, how available they are to that sort of experience. I'm not attached to them having that experience. It's just that generally speaking, it eventually does happen in therapy with me because, because that's who I am as a person. And because yeah. I believe in the power of love and laughter uh, as the kind of yoga of life, that if we, if we regress to these childlike states where we don't worry about things that you were saying about kids can just be, and they, they marvel at things when they're not worried and and not enough not much life has piled on top of them the, yeah. their consciousness is so pure that way so i've kind of find myself wanting to guide someone there if if they're interested in it 
but that yeah. there's a lot of nuts and bolts of, of the process of counseling and therapy to, to figure out whether that's going to happen. So yeah. like I have a loose affiliation to it because of who I am as a person and what I believe in terms of the psycho-spiritual power of love and laughter, but everyone who comes in determines what they can handle and we're yeah. doing a narrative. So the other, the other major part of me being a therapist is narrative therapy, uh, an individual talking their life story and going over the events of it and the feelings that they had both at the time or maybe that they're unpacking now because they weren't able to feel the feelings at the time and um, kind of linking those, those chain links, like links in a chain to create yeah. a full narrative, like a whole timeline and looking for, you know, maybe what's stuck and what, uh, what core beliefs were formed or what was handed to them in their family, anything at all from society. So the laughter part and the letting go while doing the narrative therapy tends to happen on its own because it's heavy. Like it's just yeah. therapy's heavy. So when yeah. we bring levity here or there, it's it's a it just lightens the load. And then sometimes yeah. I use that kind of reflectively to say, and I'll joke, and and sometimes with clients will be laughing so hard, I'll say, I should probably do some therapy with you now because this is like yeah. far too much. Fun. We should like, probably do some, yeah. 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 And, and I can, I totally, I totally get it. Cause I do it the same way. Like I, if I'm speaking when I'm up on a stage, there's moments in my talk where like, I have to just laugh at my own misfortune or what I've been through because I need that break. You, you need that, that reprieve from that depth and the emotion and the, you know, and I think that there's times that I crack jokes and for a split second, they're like, am I allowed to laugh at that? And then it's kind mm -hmm. of like, okay, wait, she's smiling. So there's my cue. It's okay that I found that funny. Um, yeah. But it's so necessary. It's so necessary. Yeah. And I like what you said there about kind of the whole narrative. Of, I think we have maybe one of your friends here, Amy O'Shea. Good to catch up on Johnny Rams. You still got it, kid. Um, I think- Somebody uh, watched me fall down. Someone who watched me fall I'm, down. I, that's what I'm guessing. I'm guessing that maybe there's a story some stories there that we could really go with. Um, I, uh, hi, hi, Amy. I, Thanks for tuning hi, in. Hi, Amy. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> Johnny Rams. I like it. I like that's going to stick oh, by the way. That's, that's, that's going to be the new, like we might have a follow-up show and that's going to be the title on your name. Um, I think that there's this, this misconception with therapy that you just kind of, hit on there which is the the whole narrative of there's supposed to be this natural progression and what i really want people to know as somebody who has uh, i mean i'm not a therapist i have certainly engaged in a lot of therapy and i have done a lot of mentoring and had these open loving conversations which is similar um and i think that there's a lot to be said for that that path that narrative it doesn't have to be coherent. It doesn't have to be from point A to point B. I mean, even myself, having started with a psychologist in my late teens and working with her up until last year, I mean, there were still moments five years ago that I'd surprise myself with what came out. And I think it is that that real kind of allowing yourself to just be present and mm -hmm. and in a lot of instances, allowing the person who is you know, in this instance, you 
letting you gently guide somebody through that process. And I think that a lot of people have this horrible conception that they're supposed to just go in and unbear the most unbearable things that they can come out with in their soul. Right. And, right. you know, I, I think that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's far more improvisational than we we think before we get yeah. there and, and do it. And yeah. like now you have the experience of walking in repeatedly and just improvising your way through and that there's no rules you have to follow. And that's Absolutely. very freeing. And that's pretty much how comedy works. When people really learn to be funny, when you teach them improv comedy, you teach them to say the next thing that comes into their head and it does not have to be funny. In fact, the, the first thing you coach them to do is don't try to be funny. You're just going to walk out on stage and tell a story. You're going to have a scene partner. And the first thing you need to establish is where are you and what are you doing? And if the audience okay. has given you the location, you know, start doing something and build yeah. off of what the other one is saying. Yeah. And it's when I was in high school, I was like a total tryhard, like anxious, like everything was perfect, had to be perfect, rehearsed, double rehearsed, um, great athlete, great student, valedictorian, leadership at the wazoo, Show like selected up. for total, Show right? Up. Yeah. Should I start yeah. name dropping now? Like, I mean, well, like, I, yeah, like, I feel like I need to go up my game or at least get out of my sweatshirt yeah. and put on something respectable yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it, I was such a weird uh, dichotomy between that guy and then the guy who would throw himself down a flight of stairs, like, yeah, and yeah, you know, would, would punch out from the day job, and then go hog wild with my friends who like to smoke weed and drank a lot of beer. And yeah, but I, I had to be selective about my friends because I, I didn't fit in with all the normal kind of fraternity yeah. of guys that I, I hung around them, but I just couldn't feel myself around them right. I have two older sisters, my mom, that's who raised me. I was definitely um, uh, not of, uh, you know, the saying I was, I was in, in the world of men, but not of them, sort of, in, yeah. yeah, as a young man. So when I got to college, I, I just stopped altogether with the, the athletics and the academics. I got into a really good college and I was like, okay, now I've achieved that. And I, but I was so exhausted and depressed yeah. that I dropped it altogether. And I was at breakfast one bit morning, so punchy tired before like a 7.30 a.m. math class that I was taking. And we were just cracking jokes after the class was over. And this other guy said, you should come to this comedy group that we, you're like really funny. and. And meanwhile, I was cracking these jokes because I was tired and miserable. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that that led me into this whole world of like how to do improv. And like I had no idea, yeah. had not been a stage performer, had not really tapped into my jokiness for any other purpose except to try to fit in in a world that I didn't feel like I fit in. Um, and it, I studied it and I read the books on how to do it. And it revealed to me the psychology of it, which was people, we are all weird. We're all weird. And we, yeah. we try to live in a haze of denial and shame about our weirdness. And improv allows you to just trot it out. Um, for maybe for comedic purposes, maybe not just, just be a different character for a little while yeah. and let go. And it was the first experience of like, the letting go that opened up the whole world of getting out of my own way and yeah, uh, achieving a great deal of success in that. But then I saw, okay, if I'm going to go do this for a career, I can have successful shows and I can be a writer and, and then I will go home alone and be despairingly sad because I'm yeah. not forming a relationship with any of these folks that are being entertained. 
And yeah. that really scared me because yeah. I don't know why I knew this, but I was, I somehow I knew that I needed to have relationships around it all, or I was going to yeah. sink because I'm not yeah. that I'm just a very connected person, genuine, you know, person. So I decided to not go into that world because it was, I had already gotten feedback from people who had graduated and tried that it was pretty ruthless. Um, yeah. And I just drifted towards what I'm doing now and slowly got my training together. But the improv uh, experiences never left me. And they really, once I was able to merge like the professional training to do therapy and counseling with these, this skill of just saying the next thing that comes into your head and then figuring out how to actually foster that in client work that they can come in, they don't have to have anything planned. They can improvise yeah. their way through a session. And by doing so, they will also then bring up whatever needs to be brought up in patterns that exactly I can reflect back to them with insight. And they might be able to see where they go when they go sort of in a more negative way. And they can see when they're feeling more loose and at, and at ease with themselves. And if yeah. most folks want to feel better, so they put it together on their own. And when you're just guiding the improv, that's your job is to be the yoga instructor for this improvisational experience of, of one's consciousness. Yeah. Which, which is so huge too. And a couple of things you said there, the one piece that I, I've had this conversation, uh, I always have this conversation because I think connection is so huge and we're so falsely connected in so many ways. There's so many ways in our lives that it's, we seek connection and we have this definition of what is connectiveness. And it's, you know, we, we fall short because we, we step away from that just basic human sharing of emotions and sharing of love and sharing of presence and time and space and truly being there. And I mean, I was, I had this conversation the other day with somebody I, I was talking about back when I was playing hockey and just sitting in a change room and, you know, we would have just won a huge game or we would have just won the worlds and I'm watching my teammates um, celebrate. And I mean, it's, I'm joyful. I feel happiness. I, I'm happy that I, that we won the game. I'm, I'm, I love the sport. I love the game. I enjoy doing it, but the connection was different for me. It was never that, that wasn't the space that I was most drawn to the people that I was sharing that space with because I was having to keep up this facade of being this untouchable goalie and, you know, not allowing myself to be the awkward, just kind of, I'm here and I'm having fun and I love it, but I can't keep up the facade in this setting. So I'm going to have to just sit here quietly and smile and, and process this all later. And I found that that's, I find that that's so common for people. People often have that, that connection that they feel they have to force or hide behind. And I, I just, I really love the idea of getting out of your own way and being true to yourself, because I think that's when the most, sincere connections happen it is when you allow yourself to be real with the people that you are with and they often then find that their own quirks and their own uh, oddities and their own you know true self is able to come out because you're offering them that you know in reflection and as a as a therapist i mean I, I know there's times that I've walked into my psychologist's office with not a clue what I was going to say. I, I felt great. I was like, why am I even here today? I have no need to be here. I don't, I, I don't have anything tragic happening today and I'm happy. So why would I go do this right now? 
And I think one of the biggest lessons that I can share in that and something that I'd love for you to talk to is sometimes working on ourselves from those places can be so powerful because those are the moments where we can rationally participate in wherever that conversation goes. And Mm -hmm. sometimes it leads somewhere where you are completely unexpected and had no intention of going. Or sometimes you sit there and think, well, I just paid um, however much money to talk about the weather and Will Smith. Um, You know, like it's how do we, but it's still that connection and that hour spent having that that interact uh, interaction on such a honest level. I think it's so important every single time. Right. So you're zeroing in on attachment, right? So attachment. Yeah. Yeah. That's what the human consciousness is built to attach. So when we have genuine attachment in a safe, loving environment, especially one-on-one or maybe one other small groups, yeah probably the most gratifying and meaningful experience for humans existentially to have, in my opinion. So yeah. we, and then we can share things that we did when we weren't with the other, like, Hey, can yeah. I tell you about that time? Like, you know, basic dialoguing yeah. about like how we share an experience of connecting and attaching. And then how do we practice detachment? And that's sometimes where humor comes in. If we're having a collective experience of grief, but we can, use humor to detach from the grief, but do it together. Now, now, okay, now we're into something. Now we're onto something, attachment and detachment at the same time with love, like, whoa, this is cool. Yeah. Then if you add in an audience or you have an even larger experience, people laughing together. And then I often hear people say, I needed that so much. Like I'll crack a joke and somebody will just lose it. And then they'll be like, I needed that so much. Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. And I know what they mean. I know what they're feeling. Like the number of endorphins that they just released, you know, is powerfully yeah. strong. So when we use humor at the weird times, sometimes it's because we need to detach while we're attached to each other. It's like, yeah, it's a thing. But if we if we kind of wrote that all down and make a formula, like, oh, let's do that. Let's let's yeah. do this step yeah. and then this step and this step. It's now it's not improvisational. Now you're planning it out. Yeah. And that's going to get in the way of it happening organically. So it's yeah. hard to, you know, accept that as the limit of life that we can, if we have this kind of free floating experience of it all, like, 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 that's why everything's yoga, because we're always in a posture, we're doing postures all the time. So if we want to do yeah. this sort of psychic posture of sort of levity and light, but serious and loving and real, like, I want, I hope that your folks who watch this know that when I'm sitting with folks in therapy, I'm entirely concentrating on what they're talking about and how they're feeling and reflecting that back. And if humor shows up, it's not because I want it to, it just does. And most of the time it's quite serious and it's reflective and there's, there's silence and it's a, it's the whole, you know, it's the whole attachment to healing. And then what I like to add in at some point is an attachment to the, the relief that comes from healing in the room so that someone can notice that they just talked about heavy stuff they healed and now they can have relief from that right next to the heavy yeah and then that can really underline like the healing but that has to happen pretty organically well and i can i mean i can attest to it and this this is going to take us probably a minute or two past five so i do apologize right now but not not much past it 
And I had okay. I had told you about this previously when we were talking before we went on. And and anybody who's on my page is aware of the fact that we lost a son. And and you know I can attest to this because the process that we went through. Uh, I mean, when we lost River, uh, Christy actually got sent home from the hospital, and uh, I wasn't here. I was at work, and so I'm on my way back she now knows that we've lost him she's 32 weeks pregnant she's sent home and i arrive home and it is a tricky complex messy fucked up situation to be in to find yourself at home with your partner knowing that the baby's gone and managing a two-year-old and you know so obviously keeping it from him not that's not an experience he needed to be a part of um and then trying to manage it like going to bed that night knowing that the baby's gone and knowing that that's just that's that's the reality right now the reality is right now is we're going to bed and we know he's no longer okay in there and you know self-preservation takes hold and you find yourself, it, we found ourselves, I mean, it's not going to be for everybody, but in that moment, there were definitely some jokes made that if anybody heard us talking that way or making those jokes would seem insensitive and would seem unforgivable and unfathomable. But mm -hmm. in that moment, trying to just get each other through those moments until... Mm -hmm we can get to a hospital and we can be in the process of delivery, which in and itself was another two days of hell and inappropriate hum humor. Um, it, you know, there is, it's such a connection and it's such a, it's, it gives you the ability to survive. And, and that's what I've always used it as. And that's what I have found is in those moments, it gives you the ability to survive. And, it, you know, I, I, I find this time after time in my life and I, you know, I experienced it again last night. I was, I was on a call. I, it wasn't a particularly shocking call. It was tragic. It was heartbreaking. It was sad. Um, the call ended transferring the patient, helping ambulance transfer the patient into hospice care. And only when we arrived that I realized we had arrived to where my best friend had passed away 10 years previously. And it was like this moment of, oh, sh sh like, I got to get out of here. I don't I don't want to be here in this moment anymore. And I'm there in a professional capacity. And my necessity, the moment I walked out of that, that environment was to crack a joke because I'm at work and I need to be okay to go to the next call when the tones go off. And I need to be able to be there for my coworkers and the public and whomever needs me next. And the way I'm going to do that is keep this at a safe distance until I can revisit it in a setting that is appropriate for me to allow my emotions to be attached to this and process it. And I, I just, I don't like, I, 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 I guess I'm just giving you like a glaring endorsement because I think that it's such an it's such an important piece of coping and it's so important that people hear it, especially from a professional, that it's okay to process things differently. There's no right or wrong way to do it. And you know, you you alluded to some people want to hurt themselves, some people want physical pain, some people have you know horrible thoughts. 
everybody processes differently. And as long as you're processing those things in a way that is safe and is not harmful to yourself or others and is not a negative in that it actually acts as a negative to somebody else, I I think you have to forgive yourself and just remove that judgment of that process. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly, all of it. And that the, so, the unique- So good job. Of- good job, funny guy. I love it. <laughs> yeah, we're right on time. That's good. You ended it like right- Yes. Nicely done. Nailed it. Nailed it. No, I, you know what though? I just, I really appreciate it. Um, I, I will engage in virtual treatment at a later time. Um, anytime I know I'm in New York, I know where my, my psychologist, my shrink, my, my social worker, my, whatever your title is, my counselor, maybe just the cool guy that I think I could sit in a room with and feel safe and work through with, with ever. So we'll stage the uh, humorous improv for one of those, uh, one of those chats. So I just thank you so much. I'm so grateful for your time and for being here with me today. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us on another episode of Speakeasy, where we believe conversations are meant to be had out loud. Share this episode to help others find our show. And don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also join me at kfisher30 on Instagram as I travel across Canada and the US tackling the current mental health crisis with colleges and universities.